we'll go ahead and get started in a couple minutes here. So I'll just let everyone uh, have a couple minutes to find your seats. And uh, as usual, there are handouts in the background. So if you haven't gotten a chance to grab a handout yet, um, you might want to go ahead and do that now. And um, as we're getting started, let me just go ahead and say that, uh, remind everyone of where we're at in the class at this point. So this is uh, week seven out of eight. Last week will be our last week of the class, or um, next week, rather, will be our last week of the class. And uh, this will be the last uh, regular lesson that I have planned. Next week, I'd like to have a, a final discussion um, and so this is another chance for you all to submit your questions to me, um, email me uh, throughout the week, and uh, I will do my best to um, have some material prepared in response to whatever questions I get. And it'd also be a time for um, us just to have a final Q&A and discussion, uh, that can, and that can be uh, pertaining to what we've covered in just the last three weeks, or it could be uh, really anything related to this topic that we've talked about along the way. Um, so that's where we're at. And uh, specifically, today's lesson builds off of what we looked at last week. Last week, we looked at Jesus Christ as the image of God in the New Testament. And this week, we're looking at how Jesus Christ as the image of God redeems the image of God in us. Um, so that's where we're headed. Let me go ahead and start us off with prayer, and then we'll jump into the material. Father, we thank you, as always, for this chance to gather and to learn from your word, and we ask that you would guide us by your spirit as we interpret your word together and as we do our best to uh, understand the, the rich truths and, and mysteries that um, you reveal to us through your word. And we ask that as we do so, as we study your word together and learn from it, that uh, we would be impacted, that you would uh, teach us and enable us uh, as we go from here to better reflect your image, um, uh, which is what, uh, what we're here for. Um, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, okay, so uh, to recap a little bit of what we talked about last week. Last week, we looked at the fact that um, after much of the Bible, after Genesis 9, is silent about this topic of the image of God, uh, the language of the image of God picks up again in the New Testament, um, where it refers specifically to Jesus Christ. And um, the New Testament calls Jesus uh, the image of God uh, in two places very explicitly. There are other places, too, where um, we, the New Testament alludes to Jesus being the image of God, but two very explicit instances that we looked at last week, 2 Corinthians 4.4 and Colossians 1.15. Um, and in these, as we dug down deeper into these two passages, we saw that Paul points to Jesus as the image of God in two primary ways. A, he is the embodiment of God himself, and so in a, a very literal, tangible, concrete sense, he is the image of God because he's the embodiment of God. Uh, and secondly, um, he is the new Adam who perfectly fulfills everything that Adam was originally meant to do. And so as Adam was created in the image of God, uh, Jesus is the new Adam who perfectly fulfills what it meant to be, uh, what it was supposed to mean to be the image of God in the first place. 
And so uh, when we compared what Genesis 1 through 2 has to say about uh, human beings made in the image of God to Jesus in the New Testament, um, it's really interesting. In Genesis 1 and 2, we saw way back that to be made in the image of God means um, three things. We bear uh, God's image as his children. We bear God's image as his royal representatives uh, ruling over his creation as stewards. Uh, And we bear God's image by representing his presence uh, within creation. When we look at Jesus in the New Testament, we find that Jesus is the Son of God, Um, he is the royal Messiah, and he is the embodiment of God. He's God incarnate. And so uh, he fulfills all of those original uh, functions of the image of God from Genesis 1 and 2 in uh, remarkable ways, and in imperfect ways that go beyond what um, whatever could have been said of Adam and Eve. Um, so building from there, uh, as, we, as we begin to look at how Jesus, as the image of God, redeems the image of God in us, um, one thing that we can say right off the bat is that the germ of our redemption is actually already present in the incarnation uh, itself. In the very fact that Jesus perfectly fulfills everything that it meant to be made in the image of God, uh, we can say that the image of God is already, for one thing, redeemed in himself. He's already redeemed in himself by perfectly fulfilling what it meant to be made in the image of God. Um, And uh, kind of a a small side note, um, Scripture tells us repeatedly that Jesus Christ came in order to reconcile uh, human beings and God, to reconcile God and human beings. Um, And uh, in one sense, though, when we look at the reality of the incarnation, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, um, he, he already is in himself the reconciliation of God and man in his own person. And so he already is in his own person an example of his own mission and what he came to do. Um, and, uh, and so we can say at the outset that the germ of our redemption, uh, the, the germ of the restoration of the image of God in us is already there um, in the incarnation itself. Uh, the second century church father, Irenaeus, who was, um, we believe, born around A.D. 130 and a second generation disciple of the Apostle John. Uh, Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John. Um, uh, Irenaeus said it this way, because of his immeasurable love, he became what we are in order to enable us to become what he is. He became what we are to enable us to become what he is. Um, And uh, expanding on some other statements of Irenaeus uh, from the same work, uh, J.N.D. Kelly says this. He says, uh, when he became incarnate, Christ recapitulated in himself the long sequence of mankind and passed through all the stages of human life, sanctifying each in turn. Because he is identified with the human race at every phase of its existence, he restores fellowship with God to all, perfecting man according to God's image and likeness. So, 
In other words, uh, Jesus Christ, by assuming humanity, recapitulates uh, the entirety of human existence, recaps human existence in his own person. He passes through all the same stages of life, all the same human experience that we do, and because of his perfect obedience along the way, he also sanctifies all of human existence, um, sanctifies each one of those stages of human life. And so, uh, in the, by virtue of his incarnation and perfect obedience, um, as a human being, uh, he has sanctified uh, what it means to be human and thus perfected um, humanity according to God's image and likeness. Um, he's perfected humanity in himself. So, um, to sum all that up in even simpler terms, we can say that Christ assumes our humanity in order to perfect humanity. Uh, and this is an idea that we can see in a couple places in uh, Romans in particular, uh, Romans 8, 3 through 4, and I won't go there right now, but that would be one place to turn to see some of this idea present in Romans. Um, and, um, and but, but again, the basic idea here is that Christ assumes our humanity in order to perfect it. And so just as... Um, God, uh, just as the image of God was defaced through Adam's sin, um, Paul tells us it is restored through Christ's perfect obedience. Um, and, uh, and so, from this point of view, we can say that Jesus begins a new kind of humanity. He inaugurates or begins a new kind of humanity that reflects the image of God um, as humanity and Adam never could because of Adam's sin. Um, and, uh, and so humanity began in Adam. Uh, because of Adam's sin, humanity was never actually able to achieve what it should have meant to be made in the image of God. Um, but through Christ, humanity uh, begins again um, and, um, and has that chance now of reflecting the image of God as Christ himself does. Um, and so in Jesus, we gain a new way to be human. In other words, uh, truly human as God intended. Uh, so that's some of the idea here, the basic idea um, and how Christ as the image of God relates to our redemption, the restoration of the image of God in us. Um, uh, but let's turn to um, a couple different passages in scripture and uh, get a little bit closer look at how this, um, how this works in uh, Paul's thought. Uh, so, um, let's turn to 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18, uh, first of all. Um, and when we look at uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 3, 18 in particular, the last verse of that paragraph, we read, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now, this came up in a question at the end of last week, so um, so uh, I don't see Pete in here, but, um, oh, there you are. Uh, hi, Pete. Um, and so here you go. I, I get to answer your question now. Um, uh, but let me read the whole paragraph for us so we can have a little bit of context surrounding verse 18. Uh, starting off in verse 12, uh, 2 Corinthians 3.12, Paul writes, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. 
but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now there's a lot going on in that passage, including one of, call, one of Paul's more complex uses of the Old Testament, um, which I won't go into fully here, but um, the basic idea that we see in um, 2 Corinthians 3.18 is that uh, we are being transformed um, uh, we, are, we are being transformed into Christ's own image. That's the same image, in other words, the same image as Christ. Uh, we are being transformed into Christ's own image by beholding his glory. Something, the, the, the process there is one of beholding Christ's glory and being transformed by the sight of that glory. So, in other words, uh, to put that in even simpler language, the more we look at Jesus the more we come to look like Jesus. Um, That's the process that Paul is uh, getting at here. Now, in context in this paragraph, um, verses 12 through 18, uh, Paul is really thinking back to Exodus 34, 29 through 35, uh, which is where Moses' face is changed by the sight of God's own glory. Um, Moses on Sinai beholds God's glory. He only sees his back, but he beholds God's glory. And as he comes down from Sinai, his face is apparently glowing. His face is shining. It's, it's radiating with the glory of God. He, his face has been altered, has been changed by the sight of God's own glory. For that reason, he puts a veil over his face whenever he's talking to other people from that point forward. Um, And so that's where we get this language of uh, veiled and unveiled that shows up throughout this paragraph. Um, And and Paul is drawing a little bit of an analogy here um, to um, Israel under the law versus... um, versus uh, the new covenant and us being uh, in Christ. And the analogy, the basic analogy that he's drawing here is that um, to, to, to be in the old covenant was basically like having, having a veil over your face. Um, and, you know, a veil, in other words, between you and the, full, and the full glory of God. And what happens in the new covenant through Christ is that that veil is removed. Um, that, uh, that veil that, that was a layer of separation between us and the glory of God is removed through Jesus Christ. Um, but that language of transformation uh, that shows up in verse 18 is really, um, is really alluding back to the change in Moses' own face that happened by his sight of God's glory. Um, so in the, new, in the new covenant through Christ, this barrier between us and the glory of God is removed. And what Paul is saying is that, um, 
as we, as we behold the glory of the Lord through Jesus Christ, um, we will be transformed um, by the sight of that glory um, to, uh, to look more and more like him. Once again, the more we look at Jesus, the more we come to look like Jesus. Um, now, here's where things get even more interesting. When we go, uh, we saw last week, if you go just a few verses down from that in the next paragraph, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, that's where uh, Paul first calls Christ himself the image of God. Um, uh, the, in verse 4 there, the end of verse 4, uh, Paul speaks about the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So, Put this all together, put 2 Corinthians 4.4 together with um, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and what then does it mean to be uh, transformed um, into the same image um, if Christ himself is the image of God, as we see just a few verses later? Um, what it means is that by, by becoming more like Christ, in other words, being transformed into the same image, uh, we are actually also being transformed back into the image of God. Um, the more we come to look like Christ, the more we come to look like the image of God. So you can kind of summarize all of this in a logical fashion and say this. Jesus is the true image of God, the only human being to bear God's image perfectly. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 is telling us that. Uh, so and then... Uh, we become like Jesus by beholding his glory. Um, becoming like Jesus means um, becoming uh, like the image of God too. So ultimately, as we are transformed into the image of Jesus by uh, beholding his glory, we are also transformed into the image of God and therefore the image of God is restored in us. Um, that's the process that Paul uh, seems to, to have in mind that, that, that's operating here in 2 Corinthians. Um, and so the, the root idea really there is Christiformity, is becoming like Christ. And, um, and because Christ is the true image of God, uh, that's precisely how the image of God is restored in us. Um, as we become more like Christ, we are uh, also conforming back to what it means to be made in the image of God. Um, this same idea seems to show up in passages like Romans 8.29. Um, I think that's on the next slide, maybe. Yeah, there it is. Um, Romans 8.29, Paul writes, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So again, this idea of being conformed to the image of Christ. Um, our, our destiny, our restoration um, lies in this idea of being conformed to the image of Christ um, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Um, and we also saw this, uh, a little bit of this idea uh, last week in 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Um, which I think is the next slide. There we go. Uh, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Um, and uh, so there's this idea of an exchange, uh, in effect, of the image of um, Adam 
for the image of Christ, who is the true image of God. Um, and uh, exchanging humanity in Adam, um, which we have by default for humanity in Christ, um, and, um, uh, and the result of that is, is actually conformity back to the image that we were originally created in. Um, all right, so that's one of the two main passages uh, that I wanted to look at, um, uh, the second Corinthians passage, that is. Uh, the second is Colossians 3, 1 through 10. Um, so we've talked, so far we've talked a little bit about, and through, by way of second Corinthians, we've talked a little bit about what it means or how Paul envisions this transformation taking place. Um, but, um, but, second, but Colossians 3 uh, tells us a little bit more of, um, of the, what, these, what this looks like in practicality. Um, so uh, Colossians 3.10 uh, reads, and uh, did I start at the, in the middle of the verse there? Okay, no. Um, Colossians 3.10 says, you know, we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Um, now, if we back up to the beginning of the chapter, let me read the first 10 verses for us. Um, Paul writes, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Um, so to put on the new self, as Paul says in verse 10, is effectively um, analogous to putting on the new humanity that exists in Christ, um, which ultimately also means being renewed after the image of God. Um, as he says at the end of the verse, the image of its creator. Um, and so, but what does this look like in practicality? Well, uh, what, what does it actually look like to put on the new self? What does it actually look like for the image of God in us to be renewed? Um, I would suggest that Colossians 3, 5 through 9 is actually a really good list to start with. Um, and what Paul is doing in these verses is basically expounding exactly that. Um, and so, uh, from that point of view, uh, the renewal of the image of God in us looks something like this, uh, putting to death what is earthly in us. Um, in other words, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Um, he goes on later in, in, 
couple verses later to also name uh, things like anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Um, uh, and so he gives us a little bit of an idea there of what he's talking about um, uh, uh, when he talks about the renewal of the image of God in us and what it should like to, what it should look like for the image of God to be renewed in us in practical terms. Um, but then how does this renewal take place? That may be what it looks like, but how does it take place uh, according to Paul in Colossians? Um, and I would suggest that uh, we can go back to the first couple verses of the chapter uh, to answer that question. In verse 2, Paul writes, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Um, in other words, it's a matter of setting your mind on the things of Christ, which is a lot like and very similar to the idea of beholding uh, the glory of Christ that we saw in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. So in 2 Corinthians, he tells us that uh, Paul envisions us being transformed by beholding the glory of the Lord. Um, here in, I'm not really sure what's going on, but um, yeah, I'll just use the uh, handheld mic. Am I on? All right, great. Um, all right, so, uh, so yeah, second, in Colossians 3.2, um, uh, in, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he said, uh, he, Paul uh, alluded to the idea that we are transformed by beholding the glory of the Lord. Here, uh, he says, set your minds on the things that are above, in other words, the things of Christ, um, who is above, as he says um, uh, in verse 1. Um, and it, this is actually similar to um, a thought that we see uh, all over in Paul's letters. Um, and the idea of setting our minds on Christ um, and being renewed uh, as we do so, and, uh, and likewise being transformed uh, as we do so, being transformed into his image, which as we've seen is also to be transformed um, into the image of God, or conformed back to the image of God, we could say. Um, so these are very similar, analogous thoughts, this idea of beholding the glory of the Lord in 2 Corinthians 3.18 and setting our minds on the things of Christ in Colossians 3.2. And this is really Paul's answer um, to uh, how, how the image of God is renewed in us. It's as we set our minds on Christ, um, and again, the more we look at him, the more we will look like him. Uh, it's, it's as we set our minds on Christ that this transformation ultimately uh, takes place. Um, and so, uh, you know, throughout Paul, uh, this, the, we, we see uh, the truth that Christ has set us free. He, he has set us free uh, from sin um, and death and uh, in, in the new humanity that he is um, that he has begun um, and what remains for us then is to take hold of that freedom and and to fight um, uh, Romans uh, won't go I won't I don't think I'll actually turn there right now actually I will I'll just read Romans 6 uh, 12 through 14 for us real quick 
Um, Romans 6, 12 through 14 uh, is a great example of this idea. Uh, Paul writes, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. The idea is that uh, now that we are in Christ, um, a new possibility exists. Uh, Sin does not have dominion over us uh, anymore as it did under Adam. And um, before, uh, we had not even the capability um, uh, of truly reflecting the image of God, of um, realizing what it means to be made in the image of God. Um, that, that possibility has been returned to us now uh, through Christ, and what remains is to actually do it, is to actually fight. Uh, interestingly, in this passage, Romans six twelve through 14, we see the word instruments several times if you're reading the ESV Um, but virtually every commentator who's ever written on this passage has noted that that word translated instruments um, is somewhat ambiguous. It can be translated either tools, as in like farming tools, um, or weapons. Um, And many have suggested, probably most have suggested actually, that, um, that Paul is really thinking along the lines of weaponry here. Um, uh, actually purposely using some military-like image, especially in light of the fact that he's talking about sin's dominion coming to an end. Um, and uh, so there is, um, uh, so, so there is actually an injunction now uh, to fight because we can. Um, before it would have been fruitless, um, but now um, it is not. Um, and so, um, w- let me sum up then uh, a few truths about being made in the image of God that sort of bring together everything that we've talked about for the last several weeks, from what it means to be made in the image of God in the first place, to uh, what happens to the image of God in the fall, um, to now the redemption of the image of God through Jesus Christ. And we saw to begin with in Genesis that uh, we were made to be glorious. Um, And we were, in fact, instilled with the highest dignity possible. Um, We, being made in the image of God, meant that we were made to be God's children. We were meant to rule and care for his creation. And we were meant to represent his glory and likeness wherever we go. And now there can scarcely be a higher dignity. There can scarcely be a higher calling um, than what we were given in Genesis. Um, But we saw then in the fall that there is also much in us now that is simply not the way that it's supposed to be. There is a great deal about us now that is not the way that it was supposed to be. And so we are um, now defaced images that no longer look very much like God. Um, We're full of flaws that were not part of God's design for us. And we are slaves to sin, who are no longer even capable of godliness, even capable of really reflecting 
um, God's likeness. But through Christ, we gain, um, we gain or regain what could either be thought of as a new or an old possibility, which is precisely the possibility of godliness, of holiness, of reclaiming our dignity and being what we were always meant to be. And so what remains is simply to embrace the hope that Christ has given us. And um, I will end there. We have um, actually an unusual amount of time, 13 minutes for questions and comments. So. Yeah, I'm wondering if there's, is there a distinction between the image of Christ and the image of God? I mean, one reason I'm asking is that if I were to ask, should we try to strive to be more and more like Christ? And I think everyone's, yeah, we should strive to be more like that. But if you say, like, should we strive to be like God? I, I worry a bit. Like, isn't that like what Adam and Eve were sitting for in the garden? Like, we shouldn't be striving to be like God. But like, Christ is God or something. Anyway, maybe you can unpack that for me a little bit. Uh, that's a great question. So um, is there a difference between the image of Christ and the image of God? And should we be striving to be... Um, obviously, we should be striving to be like Christ, but should we be striving to be like God? Um, so, um, there's a fine line, uh, even in Genesis, for one thing. Um, and uh, But let me just start by saying that in the New Testament, um, we certainly have... Uh, um, verses that say, you know, be imitators of Christ, that tell us to be imitators of Christ. And uh, so that, that much is clear, that we are supposed to be trying to be like Christ, um, you know, but like God? Well, uh, I mean, I would suggest that we, we do find injunctions to godliness um, throughout the New Testament. And and what is godliness except actually being like God in some manner of speaking? Um, and, um, you know, what's important is, uh, is probably exactly what that manner is. Um, and so then, uh, so that's one thing I would say is that I think that uh, in different ways, um, the New Testament does also, uh, even apart from image of God language, um, it, tell us to strive to be like God. Um, the, when we look at passages like the Second Corinthians passage, I think that uh, it's, also, it's also just a very easy connection. Um, Paul is both calling um, Christ the image of God and then talking about us being transformed into the same image. So um, it seems there that probably the image of Christ and the image of God are pretty much being equated with each other. Um, but, um, but now let's go back to Genesis, because I think that's where uh, we're, we'll actually get the most clarity. Um, uh, like you said, that was a big part of the problem in the first place, was, was um, the temptation to be like God in, uh, in Genesis 3. And that was where everything went wrong. Um, and yet, we can't deny either that in Genesis 1, 26 through 27, uh, we're made in the image and likeness of God. Um, and so, on the one hand, um, we're supposed to be like God. We were created to be like God. Um, uh, on the other hand, 
um, in some other sense, when we try to be like God, um, we're going way too far and, um, and everything goes wrong. Um, and so going back to Genesis, I mean, when we uh, expound those passages a little bit, it seems that being like God in Genesis 3 was actually an attempt to be more than a reflection of God, um, but to actually uh, take his place in effect, to assume uh, God's own prerogatives for ourselves, um, uh, to try to uh, determine for ourselves um, good and evil apart from God. Um, and so, uh, so it kind of depends on what sense you mean like God in. Um, if you mean like God as in uh, bearing his likeness, being a reflection of him, that's exactly what we're supposed to do. If you mean like God as in uh, just like him, trying to be God ourselves, um, trying to take his place, uh, then this is the essence of sin. Um, and uh, so... And so there's that fine distinction there that I think, you know, obviously we have to remember when we get to um, the New Testament. Um, to sum all that up, I would say that I think that, I think that the New Testament probably does pretty well equate the image of Christ and the image of God, um, just as it equates the glory of Christ and the glory of God. Um, and I think there is an injunction in the New Testament to be like God, um, but to be like God in the sense of reflecting God. Um, uh, not in the sense of trying to be God. Um, but yeah, thank you very much. Um, yeah. I was just thinking Philippians 2 might help to clarify that in verse 5. It says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Thank you very much. Um, I think that's, yeah, that's a great passage to turn to. And again, that's one of those passages that talks about uh, our mindset in particular and having the mindset of Christ. And, um, and, and uh, so many of the passages that tell us to be like Christ or to be godly, um, they speak of character, just as Paul's list in Colossians 3, 5 through 9, um, either character or mindset, attitude, um, these things all kind of operate in the same sphere with one another, but it seems that that's the sphere in which we're supposed to try to be like God. Um, uh, certainly not in the sense of grasping, uh, grasping at equality with him. So I kind of have a two-part question. Is of all the people who really, I'll say, use the term FaceTime with Jesus, John is the only one who really talks about the image of God in the Gospels. Um, why is that? Also, I was reading, so obviously you've touched me because I was reading last week, is we talk about um, Paul and this theory that, I want to know your perspective of, did he ever see Jesus? Did he meet him? I've read some different things that they probably passed when they, you look at the past of where their lives went. And so if he had seen Jesus beforehand and then when he was struck, um, how that 
image changed, uh, changed about Jesus at that point? Uh, just to make sure I understood correctly, you're talking about your second question is about Paul, whether Paul's, okay. Um, yeah. Um, okay, so the first question, uh, why is John the only one of the gospel writers who has anything to say about Jesus um, um, being in the image of God, or being the image of God, rather? Um, well, really, the only New Testament writer that specifically uses the language of the image of God is Paul. Um, now, uh, John, John has some things to say about Jesus that are very, uh, very analogous to what Paul is saying, um, and so he, he has the same theology, even if he uses, um, well, I, I mean, I think they all have the same theology, but I mean, John, John has, expresses very similar thoughts, even if he uses slightly different language, um, and, but, uh, but yeah, so why, why, let me answer the question, try to answer the question a little bit if I can. Um, why, why is Paul the only New Testament writer to pick up image of God language and apply it to Jesus? And um, part of that I think probably has to do with the fact that um, of the New Testament writers, Paul has the greatest obsession with Adam um, and with Genesis. Um, the, I, I've only put in the various handouts and notes that I've given, I've only put a fraction, sort of the tip of the iceberg, of um, Paul's references to Genesis and to Adam, because uh, some of them are, are much more, um, some of them are much more elusive than others, and some of them are a little bit harder to see, um, but, um, but they're all over the place. And um, so Paul, um, has really picked up that parallel between Jesus and Adam and more than any other New Testament writer. And I think that's probably part of what accounts for him also using image of God language more. Um, the other thing I'll say about why it doesn't appear in the Gospels is has to do maybe with the nature of what the Gospels are and then what Paul's letters after the fact um, are. And uh, so even though Paul's letters were um, mostly, if not entirely, written before the Gospels. Um, the Gospels are nevertheless uh, narrating um, the actual life of Jesus. Um, so we have narrative stories about Jesus, and one tends not to get a whole lot of, you know, we might say philosophical reflection on, um, on, on Jesus, a lot of theological, less less overt um, theologizing. I don't want to say that there's no theologizing going on in the Gospels. There absolutely is. It's just done in a much more implicit way. Um, and, um, and so it has to do with the genre difference, the difference between stories about Jesus and then someone actually in an almost philosophical way um, thinking out you know, propositionally what all of this means. Um, which is what we get in Paul's letters. Uh, one of those invites a lot more, um, you know, speculation about, like, well, parallels between Jesus and Adam than the other one does. So I think that probably accounts for um, some of that, too. And um, the other, uh, your other question, did Paul and Jesus ever meet? Uh, so we can answer that two different ways. So first of all, um, Paul is adamant in his letters that, 
that he met Jesus, but whenever he says it, he's always talking about his experience on the Damascus Road. Um, Paul is adamant that he didn't just, um, uh, that, you know, he didn't just, you know, hear Jesus or, or um, you know, and I'm not even sure Paul would be happy with the language of vision. As far as Paul is concerned, he saw the risen Jesus Christ. And the risen Jesus appeared to him, and he saw him personally. Um, and so, uh, so in that sense, yes, absolutely, Paul met Jesus, um, and that's extremely important to Paul. Um, and one of that's at the foundation of his claim to be an apostle um, that you know he too encountered the risen Christ um, and met him personally. Uh, Paul never says anything in his letters about having met Jesus before. Um, and so, as you said, there's been some speculation written about that. Could they have met? Could, he have, could they have seen each other in passing? And, and perhaps it's possible, um, you know, it can't be ruled out. Um, but, but the bottom line is that we really don't know um, because he never tells us. Um, okay, we have, well, actually it's 11.15, so uh, that'll have to be it. Um, and um, as I said, uh, I plan for next week to be a discussion along the lines of the earlier one that we had. So uh, throughout the week, feel free to submit questions to me, and I'll do my best to uh, think through them. Uh, thank you all.